Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Sharnetta Gadling-Cole, the president of Just For Me Consultants, LLC. Her background is in public administration, social work, and higher ed. She has more than 25 years of administrative experience, including program and quality development, quality assurance, accreditation oversight, grant writing, and fundraising. She's also the co-editor of the new book titled Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Christian Universities, an Ecological Perspective. Welcome, Sharnetta. Thank you so much, Sarah. So glad to be here. Shernetta, you and I worked together in higher ed for a bit, but we really got to know each other through this book project. I was invited to write a chapter about gender through your co-editor, Tracy Tuffy, and gender is one of my areas of research, teaching, and consulting. So the majority of the book focuses on how race, ethnicity, nationality are treated within Christian higher ed. And the book is available now for pre-order, and it hits the market in July, which we'll have a link to in our show notes. So I want to kind of set us up for this conversation by talking about kind of what students expect in higher ed right now. So you and I have worked with college students for years. We know that they expect a very high level of inclusion. We know that inclusion and a sense of belonging for our students leads to greater educational equity. The U.S. Department of Education found lowered incidence of bias, harassment, and discrimination in schools where there's a commitment to diversity. We could see metrics for student retention, social mobility, and even alumni engagement. They're actually higher in schools that commit to diversity and inclusion practices. In a nutshell, schools with diversity measures outpace those that don't. So here's my conclusion. I believe that there's value of DEI on two levels, just from our research and kind of our own lived experience. First and foremost, DEI creates greater educational equity, which is why we are all in higher ed in the first place, right? We believe in this access to education and all the opportunities they afford. And secondly, on a pragmatic level, DEI results in positive student outcomes. And that translates to monetary gains for colleges. So we can see that it's both noble and pragmatic to invest in DEI in colleges. Some Christian schools may be wondering how to create an inclusive campus environment while they're also trying to maintain their historical identity, perhaps their religious traditions. So this book aims to raise the awareness of different perspectives of DEI. So the book was written with Christian colleges in mind, but as I was going through and talking to the other authors and previewing some of the chapters, I found there's many transferable insights for all. Really, any school looking for inclusion research and stories that help showcase the voices of diverse others, they're going to find a lot of value in this book. So I want to start with the genesis of the book. Tell me why you and your co-editor, Tracy Tuffy, and the publisher, why did you believe that this book needed to be written? Well, first of all, both Tracy and I were social workers. And from the macro perspective, we understand the importance of having policies in place that safeguard students from diverse backgrounds. And with that being said, we wanted others to have a voice to speak on some of their learned experiences. And that came from individuals maybe who wanted to talk about 
their specific experiences or those that were expert like you related to gender. And so with that, we wrote the proposal, presented it to the publisher, and it was well received. And we were able to obtain individuals who were contributors that had a diverse background, as you have stated, as well as those who wanted to share their story, their personal experiences. And like you alluded to as well, a lot of the information can be transferred from Christian universities to maybe HBCUs or PWIs, primarily white institutions, as we identify some of those gaps needed to ensure that students are successful. And that's really the justification of the book itself. We wanted to ensure that students were able to matriculate through their higher education experience and feel that they're included, feel they have a voice. And we felt it would also help administrators as well as staff and faculty understand the importance of allowing students to have their voices heard and their needs met. So that would be, I think, the primary reason for us deciding to move forward with this particular opportunity. Yeah, and you mentioned that it started with a proposal, you and your co-editor. So you must have felt like a personal calling for this. So how do your lived experiences as a person of color and a female of color really help you find the value and the importance of this work? Well, first and foremost, I identify as a Christian. I grew up, my father pastored for 20 years, so my faith is at the foundation of my values. When I had the opportunity to work at a couple of Christian universities, as well as I matriculated through a Christian university for undergrad, I really felt a connection because of the values and beliefs. With that being said, As a social worker, you put on that hat, you identify that sometimes students from diverse backgrounds across the board, they need special considerations. So we wanted to have an opportunity for those students to voice any concerns they may have related to DEI. And we wanted to ensure that their voices were heard. And I keep going back to the voice context because that's really the premise of a lot of the research that I'm involved in is I think it's so important that voices are heard. And so this was an opportunity for staff as well as faculty and administrators like yourself to identify policies and procedures that should be in place that would assist those students as well as providing administration with feedback on some practices that could be put in place. And talking about some of my own experiences, when I was matriculating through my PhD program at Howard University, which is a historically black college and university, my first faculty appointment was at a PWI. And it was somewhat of an interesting transition for me, to say the least. And in a lot of ways, I didn't felt I was prepared to navigate some of those systems. So I actually reached out to my current, well, my advisor at the time, and I let her know, really, I just needed to come back to the HBCU (laughs) because this wasn't working for me. But she was like, push your way through. And I think some things we must go through in order to help others. In some spaces, I didn't feel that I was necessarily included or my voice was heard. And that was from a number of factors that could have been because I was an African-American woman, 
It was known that I was a Christian. It was down south at the time, so it's different dynamics there as well. So what I've always tried to do through my own experiences, if I can help the next person as they're navigating through, I try to do that. So working in Christian universities, I'm like, I understand that every university has its own ideology because it's not the same across the board. At the same time, we must focus on the needs of the students. We must provide them with a safe place to be successful in their educational experience. And with that being said, we'd heard students' voices, we'd heard from staff and faculty from diverse backgrounds, and they felt there was a need for more processes in place to assist those students, more safeguards in place for those students. And with that being said, we said, you know what, let's take this opportunity to for us all to come together and share our voices and empower those students and just help them to be successful as they matriculate through higher education. You said a couple of things that I want to focus on for just a minute. You talked about the importance of policies and practices, which is something I'm I'm all in on, right? That's like what I do as well. Those structural elements cannot be underestimated about how they add up and manifest in a student's experience at a particular university. So that's one thing that I just kind of want to note for our audience. And then the other thing that you kind of mentioned was that there's a wide range Right. And I study policies and practices too, mostly related to gender, but it's true as well for race and ethnicity and nationality studies that you can look at any type of school that identifies as Christian, religious, faith based, and you will see the whole spectrum. Right. So even though if they all identify within a similar religious vein, it doesn't mean their policies and practices and level of inclusion plays out the same. Correct. I totally agree with that statement. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about who do you foresee as being like the primary and maybe even the secondary audiences for this book? Who do you hope it reaches? Well, I think it's very important that it reaches administration, those administrators at the various Christian and other universities. It's also important for staff and faculty, I think, particularly at Christian University, because this is a focus so they can understand that there are ways that to support students as well as advocate for some of their own needs. Because through some of the stories that were told, because we had different types, I guess you said, of chapters, some were more biographical, where people talked about their experiences. And then we had those that were experts in areas like yourself who focused on gender policies and procedures. So particularly those who talked about more of their own experiences, we were able to see how some subtle situations can be addressed. Like, for instance, one of the chapters, the author talked about just having her space being respected and not touching her hair because you're curious, just subtle things, you know, that we can identify and how it is somewhat difficult from some one from a diverse background to come into a space where it's not too many like them and how we can support those individuals as they attempt to navigate systems. I remember starting off in my career and there were people who were very nice and what can we do to help you? Just let us know where at the time I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know what I needed. So I needed someone 
who would be able to say, you know what, Sharnetta, I'm going to mentor you through this process. I know there are not many minority faculty. And when I say minority, I can women and as well as of color. So I'm going to introduce you to individuals. I'm going to make you feel included. And that's another thing, you know, when we talk about DEI, of course, diversity comes first (laughs) when we, that acronym. But when you look at DEI, I do feel that inclusion should be at the forefront because you have to feel a sense of being included and belonging in order to feel as if you have a voice when you're in an environment. So navigating systems, I think, is important. I feel like that will assist faculty and staff, and I even think some students. So this would be good for them to read and understand what policies are out there that can assist them and some of the stories that's told with experiences they may be able to relate even though it's coming from a staff or faculty standpoint. So because we were all students at one time. We're still students. (laughs) (laughs) We're still learning. I hear individuals all the time who will say what's not right in an environment. Well, what can we do to make a difference? So that's why Tracy and I were like, you know what? Let's try to bring a group of individuals from diverse backgrounds with a variety of experiences. And let's speak to ways that we can assist students to be successful. That's the bottom line. And like you stated earlier on, if a student does not feel that they belong in a space, the majority of the time, they're not going to be successful. And then that will lead to them leaving. (laughs) And with that, you're going to have the cost of that is going to negatively impact the university. And it's not about having a one size fit all because every university is different, even though they may be under the same umbrella of ideology related to a religious belief. We still have to look at the unique perspective of that university and identify what can we do to ensure a student's success. And one thing that I feel strongly about is if you're going to enroll a student, regardless of the ideologies of the university, you have to ensure that they have what they need to be successful. Some religious beliefs may feel that a certain population group may not be a good fit. I'm not going to say if that's right or wrong, but I will say if you enroll them, you have the responsibility to provide what they need to be successful. Yeah, let's stay with this idea for a while because I think that's at the crux of why this book has value for so many higher ed leaders and students, like you mentioned. But where do you see some of these obstacles for Christian schools in creating this equitable and inclusive environment? I sort of operate on the assumption that everybody wants that, right? We all want our – but I think we fall short because – We may think we are meeting the needs of students when in reality we're not, right? So where do you see these obstacles? And if you have any solutions or thoughts or insights on how to solve that, I mean, I'd love to hear it. Well, I think some of the obstacles come with the beliefs of the universities that will basically state it's because of scripture that they're not embracing diversity. And there's a lot of debate on that (laughs) from a theologian perspective, and I'm not a theologian, but 
that's what they will use. And I don't understand that either, because to me, as a social worker, as a Christian, as a woman, as a parent, (laughs) I would want to ensure that any group of individuals will feel that they're included. But I found that's been a major hindrance for some universities is that they rely on a scripture and that sets the foundation for them to say, oh, we are not going to embrace diversity. It's like diversity in some instances has become a bad word. And I'm really shocked at that. You know, when I see um, you even have from a lot of areas now, the whole DEI piece coming out and look at politicians that's pushing back on diversity, equity, inclusion as if it's something negative. And I think that's the main hindrance. How do we address it? I think it's important for those who are within an institution of higher learning and they do not embrace the aspect of DEI, but they're enrolling students (laughs) from diverse backgrounds. I think we have a responsibility to speak up on behalf of those students, on behalf of staff and even faculty, because one thing we want to do is we want to ensure that they can graduate. That's the bottom line. And parents, they send their children to school and they're hopeful that they'll be in a culture where they'll feel that they belong. And if anything happens, they have those individuals in place that could serve as somewhat of a safe haven. And as a mother of African-American children, I have been blessed to have individuals that came into my children's lives that were able to assist them on their journey, but others may not have that benefit. So I think it's important as administrators, as just mothers, you and I are both mothers, so you understand we're both women. (laughs) So when we're in environments where we can have a voice, it's important for us to advocate. It's important for us to ensure that The voices are heard. And I know you've done that throughout your career at your institution where you were very instrumental in advocating for gender and mentoring women in various roles. It takes that. It takes us being willing to step up and say, this is what needs to happen. Now, with that being said, there may be ramifications, (laughs) you know, and they're not always positive, but that's okay. And I think from my spiritual belief systems, I think it's important to stand for what you believe in. And as a social worker, we truly believe in empowering those individuals to do that. So with me and with Tracy, It's just ingrained in us that something that we knew it was important to do. And so when we decided to go forth with this opportunity and bring in those individuals who could speak as well, it's been a beautiful thing. I've enjoyed reading the chapters and just providing this space for voices to be heard. Yeah, and I think that's so beautifully put, and I really appreciate that. Let me pick your brain about another solution. You talked about this advocacy model, right? We do what we can within our circles of influence to speak for those who may need us to speak for them and to advocate for them. What about the actual makeup and composition of the leaders themselves in certain institutions? Talk to me about representation at that level. Like, what does that do to change this whole game? 
Well, we have a lot of institutions that are pushing the whole DEI perspective because it became really popular. There are those of us, including yourself, that have advocated that for years. But I will say in the most recent years, they have stated we need to have individuals in place specifically for DEI. But what I found based on some feedback from colleagues who have been put in those roles they haven't been able to be successful. You can't just put one individual within an institution and make them the person that's over the whole DEI efforts for the university. I think first and foremost that it must be ingrained in the strategic plan of the university. It shouldn't be just in specific areas where nobody right, knows that's, where they that's are. That's her issue. That's <laughs> yes. her office's yes. issue. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, I understand that. What about the power of three? What if you have three people of a demographic that really need to have greater representation in an institution? Is that a solution? Well, I've been in institutions where they've had various groups. They'll establish an African-American group or a Hispanic group. And I have not found that to be very effective. Oftentimes, they're in a silo by themselves and they don't even have the voice or the ear. They have a voice, but they don't have the ear of higher of upper administration. And what you got to recognize, too, as you know very well, sometimes the university is decisions are not made right in the university, they might be a board of trustees or depending on the religious affiliation, they have, I guess, a stronger hold on what's embraced and what's not. And what I found as well, if you choose to go against the grain, that can lead to some negative circumstances. So I think individuals will sometimes silence themselves you know, and go along with it until it comes back for them. <laughs> and that's the interesting piece of, and I think that sometimes a natural consequence of being in certain environments. And what I've actually found is those people who leave or on their way out, <laughs> that's the ones who may decide they're going to voice their concerns because they're leaving and they don't want to deal with if I stay, if I'm going to be vocal on experiences, how will I be treated? And it's unfortunate, but there are those circumstances in which people feel as if they're targeted for voicing their concerns or for advocating, even behalf of students, which is very interesting. So I feel like if for DEI or any type of effort, to ensure inclusion, it's going to have to be upper administration being willing to be a voice as well, hearing what's coming from their staff and faculty and particular students, and not just setting up separate groups within the university and saying, okay, well, you can have a speaker come and talk about your issues it takes more than that. It takes specific policies and procedures that are in place and that are embedded within the strategic plan of the university. That when you look at the mission of the university, it speaks on the importance of inclusion. They don't want to use it, the diversity word. <laughs> you can use inclusion or some use belonging, which 
it kind of encompasses it all. Yeah. So I'm hearing you talk about this that on a practical level, it often shift the burden shifts to the individuals, right? Certain individuals who somehow have it within them, the courage to speak up and advocate. It's kind of on them. But really, in order to make real change within an organization, we have to look at this from an organizational holistic perspective. So strategic plan, which may start to change culture. That's a tricky one. We all know about culture, right? But that idea of it has to be fully embraced at the top or we're going to get nowhere. And I think that speaks to the importance of this book. If you start to normalize and mainstream diverse others and their perspectives and the research on it, you can begin at least a conversation. And that's why I really felt so grateful to be invited into this book project was it gave me a platform to say, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Your institution does get to choose that for yourselves. And yet, there's so much we can be thinking about. And where do you want to be? What do you want the student experience to look like? Let me help you think through how this could be even better. Mm-hmm. Not pointing fingers, not accusing, absolutely not. We're all students of this too. We're all, in, in 20 years, our work will be antiquated. People will think we're quaint. <laughs> we will be history, right? But for now, we like to look at, you know, how do we make things better? So as I mentioned earlier, my chapter does focus on gender, specifically how an institution's views of gender are reflected within student policies and practices. So the policies and practices lead to campus climate perceptions, which directly impact student outcomes. We know higher ed leaders watch student outcome metrics very closely. And I do consult with colleges. We're looking to refresh their policies and practices for increased gender parity. The stakes are high for colleges. A college with a chilly campus climate, they're going to experience reduced student retention. We know that from the research. Student retention numbers are key metric, of course, and indicates the health and viability of an institution. So national retention numbers right now for private nonprofits are right around 68%. And this is being recorded in early May 2023. So let's run the numbers. So imagine we'll take a college, we'll make it up. ABC College costs $35,000 a year. So say a student leaves college ABC after one year, she says, I don't feel welcome. I'm a female. I don't like the campus climate. I'm going to transfer to a different college. College ABC, they just lost $105,000, assuming she would have stayed for another three years had she felt like she could stay. So that's $105,000 in tuition revenue from just the one student. So multiply that 105 by the number of students who transfer out for DEI reasons. Maybe they're seeking a more equitable and inclusive environment. They just have this weird, sometimes I think students always don't even know how to talk about it. I'll hear them say things like, I just don't really fit in. I don't belong. I don't feel like I found my group. They'll say something along those lines, but essentially they don't belong. They don't feel like they belong. So the lower the retention the higher the lost revenue. So I study the impact of gendered policies and practices on student outcomes. And I know though that those outcomes are mirrored for race, ethnicity, and nationality too. So can you share a little about your own personal experiences, Sharnetta, and thoughts on how students from historically marginalized groups, they might experience a chilly campus climate? Well, I can talk from the aspect of actually I matriculated through one PWI, but that's when I was in graduate school. And that's somewhat different, I think, than the undergrad experience. I had a life outside. (laughs) But for undergraduate students, what I have found is representation is key. 
if they feel that, like you said, they have a specific group or a sense of belonging, which some try to set up within the university. However, they also need the representation within the classroom. They need to see individuals that look like them. I will say from an experience of me on the faculty administrative side, when I have been at a university where there are not many African-American women per se, and I'm in the classroom, I find that the African-American women students will gravitate towards me because they're like, wow, she looks like me. Maybe we have similar experiences because we are African-American women. Even though our journey may have been different, we may have experienced some of the same things. And then for some reason, it seems to correlate with trust. They might not even have had many conversations outside of the lectures or for facilitating a discussion, but it's like it's automatically assumed the trust is there just because the representation is there. With that being said, some of the problems are you have some universities that do not retain their diverse faculty and staff members. So we need to look at that point. What can we do from that side? And I think that's somewhat similar to the student side. Oftentimes, there's not representation of any kind at some PWIs at the upper administration level. So those individuals do not have oftentimes the trust piece as well within the institution. Maybe it's because of their own personal experience. There's that double jeopardy theory that I write about sometime. And then there's triple as well, being maybe a woman and being black. And then you got maybe being older. So you got the triple jeopardy. (laughs) So sometimes you come in spaces and you need to feel as if You have those individuals in place that will advocate for others. And that's one thing I can say about my co-editor. She was in higher education for many years prior to retirement and has always been a voice for students as well as faculty and staff. And it takes those individuals. It takes them being courageous, I will describe, and willing to navigate systems even though It may negatively impact them in a way. But being a Christian, we understand our source and we understand the scripture that to whom much is given, much is required. So it's important that we're willing to set our feelings aside. And sometimes that's all it really is because our feelings will get hurt if people don't talk to you or (laughs) the dynamics change, but that's okay. We have to be willing to stand for righteousness sake. We have to be willing to stand for students. And when we have the authority that I feel only really comes from God, we have to be willing to stand for others as well. And regardless of negative consequences that may come our way, sometimes that will thrust us into our destiny. Like with you, for instance, I mean, for years you have been advocating for women in higher education. And now look at where you are now, where you're going to other universities and talking about policies and procedures that need to be in place to ensure inclusion. So I think that's wonderful. And sometimes We want it to be easy, you know, and then we don't go through the storm. And sometimes the storm builds us 
to our destiny. And so that's how I look at the journey. And you have to be okay as well to not, I've always had a mantra that I will not sell my soul for a job. And there are people that will, I mean, literally, and not even that much, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it better be seven figures if I'm yes. going to sell my soul. If, I mean, I've got a price yes. on it. And it's, so that's always been important to me. So when you get two people together, like myself and Tracy Tuffy, we ready to rock and roll. So <laughs> I know, and you off. two have been such a source of inspiration and such great role models in schools and in your other circles of life, too, just in your friend groups, too. You hit something for me. I on the head. I just want to highlight for our listeners, you use the word trust. When my students see someone like them, there's trust. My gosh, right? The foundation of all relationships, all successful relationships have trust. And so I really appreciate that you used that as sort of a pillar of what representation really means to students. It's not just a box to check, a nice thing to do. We probably should do. It sounds good, but really it's getting at the heart of those student-teacher relationships and making sure that the students feel like they can feel safe in their educational journey. So let's talk a bit about who's getting it right. Have you studied or do you know of any Christian colleges that have really sort of embraced inclusivity and are making it work and really seeing some positive student outcomes? Any models for us? Well, I have not identified, I guess you'd say, any Christian universities that's doing it perhaps right but they're making it work in the context of their religious beliefs. I know of universities that they won't even enroll a student if their belief systems doesn't correlate with the institution's priorities, put it that way, where they students have to literally sign and say they're in agreement with the religious beliefs of the institution. And all that, although for some you scratch your head, but you got to respect those <laughs> institutions. Right. Because and it's voluntary. Yes. You don't have voluntary. to. No one's making you. But they're very clear from the onset. And I think those institutions are the ones that are more able to provide the needed resources for their students because they're clear on these are the students that we're going to focus and target. When you have those institutions who have those belief systems, but enroll students there were, and I'm saying belief systems where their ideologies don't necessarily embrace DEI, but they enroll students from diverse backgrounds, then they don't give them the supports they need to be successful. Or when I say they, it could be students, staff, faculty. We've talked about the importance of retaining diverse faculty, staff, administrators. That's the ones that I think are problematic. Because if you're going to enroll a student or if you're going to hire a faculty member or a staff or administrator, you need to ensure you have the support systems in place for them to be successful. Because although we want to pretend like discrimination doesn't exist. It does. That's very well founded. So we need to ensure that those individuals have a voice when they have concerns that they can go to somebody. And we just talked about that they can trust you and have their concerns addressed and not make them then the problem because they're uncomfortable and they don't want to have to address the issues. So I will say for a system to be successful, stay true to who you are 
But at the same time, if you're going to enroll or hire, you're going to have to meet the needs of those individuals. No, and that's just the bottom line to me. Absolutely. Thanks, Shernetta. Well, as we're wrapping up, tell us what's your best advice for college leaders who are looking to operate a financially viable institution? It could be related to DEI, but it could be related to something else. I think it's so important for institution of higher learning um, administrators to be willing to hear the voices of those they serve. And those would be the students, their parents, you know, really, because oftentimes parents are more involved than the students in some instances, but also being willing to advocate on behalf of the students from diverse backgrounds. And it's a lot, when we say diverse, that's a really a word that has a number of, I guess, definitions, because people always talk about, oh, okay, the race factor or gender, it can be disability, socioeconomic status. There's much broader, right? There's so many areas of that, but just ensuring that it's a, like you alluded to, being holistic in scope, not just having a policy here, but ensure that there's practices in place, ensure that there are solid support systems that where individuals have concerns they can go to and have their issues addressed and not just swept up under the rug. There have been some instances wherein issues have been brought forth to administrators and they don't want to deal with them. So they'll ignore them. Well, it's not going to go away. You have to be willing to meet issues head on. You have to be willing to have those tough conversations. And sometimes it will take maybe removing individuals from different roles where there's not a good fit. And what I found at some institutions of higher learning is they have the same individuals in positions for many years and they're consistently the same problems <laughs> that have not been addressed. And to me, that's very problematic. Sometimes change is necessary. Allowing diverse voices to be heard. Don't suppress those individuals that are different from you from allowing their voice to be heard. And just to continue to provide a culture where students can prosper as well as our faculty and staff. I think that's very important. All right, Chanada, this has been so helpful and I just can't wait to see the book come out. We will have the link for the book to order if you'd like in the show notes. I'll have your LinkedIn, your website, and your email address all attached. I can imagine some people will want to reach out with you and really enter the conversation with you. So thank you again, Chanada. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Sarah. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.